Originally from Newfoundland, Davnet Doyle is a Juno-nominated songwriter and performer who serves on SoCan's board of directors. In April, she released her solo album, Liquor Store Flowers. Uh, recently, she also wrote an opinion piece on how the music industry needs to support musicians who quit drinking. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get to all that stuff, I want to kind of set the stage a little bit yes. uh, for people. So you're born in Labrador City, Newfoundland. Your mother was a teacher. Your father was a professor. Were they musically inclined? My mother, I have memories of my mother as a young, when I was a young child, sitting on the end of our bed and playing guitar. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, and she was great. I mean, she doesn't, she doesn't play now, but... Um, my father and his entire family were really involved in drama and mm. drama festivals in Newfoundland and Labrador around the province. And my father, aside from being a professor, would write plays. He's a playwright, direct plays, uh, do sets and lighting and, and write books on curriculum. So he's really all over the place. So he's... He's been pretty inspiring to me. Yeah, so you grew up immersed in all this kind of thing. Yes. Because I sometimes yeah. think, I, I grew up uh, in Nova Scotia, in a very small town in Nova Scotia, where there wasn't access to a lot of the stuff that I was interested in. Yes. Uh, and then I went to the Neptune Theater in Halifax oh, and course. saw John Neville do um, Othello, and it oh. blew my mind, and, and it really gave me a lifelong love of this. But because of geographically of mm -hmm. where I was, it was sort of harder to get at. But it made me, I think, uh, study it more, try and learn about it more, mm -hmm. because all I could do was read about it. I, I, I didn't live in a big city where I could sort of have immediate access to it. Did it feel like that for you? It It's funny that you say that because, you know, still t I've been living in Toronto for over 20 years. And still the fact that I can get into a car and drive <laughs> to New York City or Nashville freaks me out. And every time I do it, it freaks me out because I really have this island um, mentality mm -hmm. of isolation. And, and really, that's what it was. Um, my mother would go to New York City um, once or twice a year and go to musicals and bring wow. back the tapes when we oh. were younger. So Saturday morning, she'd be washing dishes and cleaning up, and she would have the tape of Big River, the musical. <laughs> and it's like that. that is really what I grew up on, and my dad would listen to Willie Nelson, and, and that to me was the outside world. And But at the same time, my parents still raised me that I could do or be anything I wanted, mm -hmm. like just to the the ninth degree. Yeah. So the isolation isolation wasn't holding me back, but uh, it was interesting. I, I think that isolation sometimes, because I certainly felt it when I was growing up, uh, can be a good thing. Mm -hmm. And I think what I mean by that is that you are not uh, part of this larger crowd. Uh, if you grew up in a city, you would be able to find your little subset that mm -hmm. you belonged in and you sort of, you know, fit in and, and you blend in possibly in with those people. When you're a little bit isolated, you have to find your own stuff that's cool yes. and you have to kind of figure it out for yourself. And I think it makes for a more unique kind of approach to things. Oh, I, I one million percent agree <laughs> if I can, if that's a percentage. I will take that. So you moved to St. John's when you were six. Yes. Uh, and so the opportunities there would probably be more to perform, to take part in things. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because in we were we grew up in in Wabush. So at that time, it was a real iron ore mining town, and the only thing that the adults had to do were 
write plays, put on plays, <laughs> and then go to the parties after the plays. Right. And as a young kid, I would be up there until 2 o'clock in the morning if there was a drama festival at the <laughs> dances. Like, it was an explosive time. So when we moved to St. John's, that almost, it took a couple of years to kind of build that community again. Right. Um, as a lot of people move from Labrador to St. John's to the big city. But, um, you know, there I just kind of found my way with the Kiwanis Music Festival and then in school with choir. And it just felt like, oh, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. And then when I was in high school, um, I got cast for my for being an actor, really, mm-hmm. in, in the musical Into the Woods. I was cast oh, wow. as, as the witch. <laughs> so it wasn't because they thought I could sing, because right. I had this soprano kind of weak ah, no. voice. And then halfway through rehearsals in this role, which is Bernadette Peters played it on... Uh, in Meryl Streep. And in Meryl film. Streep. In the, I haven't seen the movie, actually, because I'm so in love with the <laughs> production, but theater production. And then halfway through that, all of a sudden, this voice came out of me, this loud, grumbly, I found my chest voice. And it was astonishing for me and for everybody else because I have a really loud voice, <laughs> like an extremely loud voice where one time kids were just holding their ears because it was so loud. And it was, it you know, it was like I was birthed on that stage. Yeah. It was like, oh, I have this thing, monster inside of me and how do I harness it? And that was really the beginning for me of knowing that I wanted to do this for a living and I'm speaking with Davinette Doyle. The new album is called Liquor Store Flowers. And a little bit later, we're going to talk about an article that she wrote for the Toronto Star about how the music industry needs to support musicians who quit drinking. But we're getting there. Yeah. So you knew then that that's what you wanted to do. Yeah, actually. I'm always always interested in the moment. You know, like that moment, that moment where it happens. That that was the moment. And that was not the moment I thought I'd be a singer. That was the moment I knew I'd be an actor. Because you applied to acting school. I did. And and they the said The National no. Theatre School. They said, no. They said, you're good. Try try next year. Mm. I was a December baby. And uh, in, oh. in the... See, you're right? just in I that. I was yeah. on the yeah. cusp. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I went to university. I went to one semester of university. And then I got cast in a, a professional production of Rising Tide Theatre. And we toured the province. I played a 17-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy. And those pictures still <laughs> hang in the Arts and Culture Centers in Newfoundland. It's amazing every time I go there. And I, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And then so at that point, I was applying for theater school. Then I didn't get in. And then that summer, I got a job at a record store called Fred's Records. And we're going to get there. So, yeah, sorry, so yeah. what was it that you yeah. loved about it? Was it the applause? Was it the attention? Was it just expressing yourself? I think I just loved... At that moment, the craft of becoming somebody else. Right. I I just really loved – I was – I mean, I was a way better actor at 16 than I am now at 43 (laughs) because I have all these fears and and self-aware – I mean, in my mid-20s, I I kind of was like, I'm going to be done with music for a bit and said, I'm going to focus on acting, got an agent and went on some auditions. And those auditions still scar me to this day. I mean, the most crippling – thing you could ever do because to be an actor, to get a job as an actor, Mm -hmm. not when you're a good actor and then you get the jobs, you can kind of forget this, but you have to be so self-aware. You have to be so focused on what you look like. And it was crippling for me. And I just decided I do not want to do this. And and there's a fearlessness that has to Mm -hmm. go in with that as well. And I think the fearlessness is is easier when you're a kid because stuff doesn't matter as Mm -hmm. much. But then as you 
go along, you start to, you know, build one anxiety on top of another yes. or one sort of, you know, insecurity on top of mm-hmm. the other. And all of a sudden you've got these fears and, and yes. the fears are what will bring you down. Abs, abs, especially, you know, when you're in your 20s, you don't know up from down anyway. Yeah. But if anybody wants to give me a role, I'll be real good. Just don't make me audition. <laughs> That's right. Well, a lot of people can audition. Yeah. You know, auditioning Oof. is not for everyone. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah. Uh, and I, I've, I've rarely ever auditioned, but mm-hmm. the idea that you have to go in and stand in front of people who are dispassionate. That's yes. the thing about auditions. Yes. Is people sit there and they've got little you know, bits of paper in front of them and they look at you, you look at your picture and then yes. they look at you again and then they're like, mm, okay, uh, I'm about to have an anxiety attack. Yeah. Please stop <laughs> going terrible. into the minutiae. It's horrible. It's the yeah. worst feeling because you just feel like you're a thing. Yes. You are a thing that, that a you disposable. Know, can, can either speak or not mm-hmm. or sing or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so you work at a record store yes. and things change here. This is yeah. really like, as I was reading all the stuff about you, this seems to be, I think, one of those places where there was a hinge in people's lives yes. often. And yes. this appears to be it because Sliding doors, you were, sure. yeah, absolutely. You were uh, not, uh, you were working in a record store, which was also a record label as well, right? It was becoming one. It was becoming yes. one. And uh, and you were not signed as an artist. You no. Were, you were working in the office, right? Oh, yeah. I was, I was working in the office. If they needed the bathrooms clean, I cleaned the bathroom. Right. I answered yeah, yeah. the I answered the phone. I answered, you know, I I wrapped up, you know, back then uh, tapes were in Newfoundland were wrapped in like some saran wrap type thing. So right, I, yeah. my job would be to as the top of the tapes would fall down, I'd have to go back in and stack <laughs> them up. Um, but it, well, I had no desire to be a singer or a musician. I mean, right. I'd I'd I I was a good singer. I sang in a cup, you know, in a band. And we did a demo tape. I really didn't think about it. I wasn't like, right. I'm going to go to Toronto and be a singer. I'm yeah, going to yeah. pursue this. It wasn't that at all. And then Graham Stairs, um, who's a manager uh, from Toronto, was down in St. John's setting up an independent label called Latitude from it, EMI. And this is around the really the beginnings of the East Coast music boom. Yes. And there was a moment yes. where just they, you couldn't sign bands from down there fast enough. Oh, it was he? I mean, it was between... Uh, Sloan and Ashley McIsaac and Great Big C. I mean, it was, it was, it was really something. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, um, and anyway, so he was down setting up a label and he heard me over singing, uh, overheard me singing in the office. It was a song called Cape St. Mary's because one of my coworkers, Robert Buck, hated that song. So I would (laughs) sing it repeatedly (laughs) at the top of my lungs. And uh, Graham said to Fred Brokenshire, who owned Fred's records, he was like, who is that? And and he was like, oh, it's Davin. She's got a tape here because I'd given them the tape. And he, you know, as legend would have it, Graham put it in his car and got halfway around the block and said, she's got, you know, she's got it. She's got to be our first signing. And so they kind of came into the office and Fred was very, you know, kind of a flamboyant guy. He was like, you're going to be a star. <laughs> and I was like, okay, cool. Let's do this. Yeah, it was it was literally that easy. Um, did it make it seem like when it's... Yes, it, when all, it, everything you're about to say, yes. Yeah. Did it make it seem like it wasn't real or that it was too easy or that like, oh, anybody can do this or, um, of course, it's like this for me because I'm so incredibly talented. You know what it was? It kind of set the stage for kind of the minimum amount of work, Yeah. which is not a good way to start a career. Yeah. If you think it's easy, no. Everything in life is hard, no matter what you do. It was, I mean, it was a wonderful thing to have had happen. I wouldn't change a single thing about my life. But the thing is, 
So I did this record. It came out when I was like 19 or 20. I had the first single that came out, which was the last song that I wrote for the record, um, came out. It was a huge hit. It was It was on every radio station. It was on much music yeah. uh, repeatedly. And I just thought that that's the way it was. Yeah. And that is not the way it is. Yeah, yeah. There's an incredible amount of work that goes into this. And, and there's a shocker when huge shock. like the next single comes out and doesn't do well, right? That's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. So the next single came out and did okay, but, you know, and then the one after that, oh. Not yeah. so much, and then all of a sudden you're washed up at 19. Yeah, and the and the people that were like, you're going to be a star yeah. aren't returning your phone calls anymore, oh, you're, right? You're, yeah. Not only are you going to be star, you destroyed our record label. Right. You know, we spent so much money on you, and there was no return in the investment. Um, and, and you're 20. I'm 20 or 21 at and, this and, point. And, and a woman in the music industry, yes. which, you know, I think... I think it's significant in that, mm-hmm. you know, so often I think that, that women in the music industry have been treated uh, like objects rather than yes. than uh, artists, uh, like disposable, mm-hmm. um, aren't treated as seriously as songwriters. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I experienced every single one of those things. and But I came to my own reckoning. I, I got a, a, a tour opening up for Steve Earle. Across the country. It wow. did two weeks opening up for Steve yeah, Earl. Yeah. Just after this record had kind of come out, it had it, its its rotation and was on the decline. And I was standing side stage when he sang the song Goodbye that he had written that Emmy Lou Harris had recorded on a Wrecking Ball record, which I was obsessed with yeah, yeah. at that point. I knew at that point I did not want to be a disposable pop artist. Even though on my first record, I think there were glimmers of of who I am now and the mm-hmm. thinker I am now. But uh, musically, not so much. You're 20, you're going to be sold as a pop artist. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was yeah. because I didn't know how yeah. to do anything else. Yeah. And I was standing side stage watching Steve Earle going, if I'm going to stay in the music business, that's what I want to mm-hmm. do. I want to learn how to do that. So I taught myself how to play guitar. And then basically for 20 years, I went and I wrote with every single person that I could, learned as much from the bad experiences as as I did from the good, and studied songwriting as a craft. And I think now at 43, it's so funny, I, I went to Mexico City to give a speech on gender uh, gender equality in the music industry and spoke with people from around the world, from every country around the world. And my point was, when I was 20 and those videos weren't wearing half as much clothes as I am now, yeah. I was okay as an artist. Now at 43, I can honestly say I'm great, but the market is not there for me anymore. Right. You know, it's it's it really the music industry fuels this youth obsessed, um, you know, looks driven uh, consumerism society. I well, I, I agree absolutely. Mm. Uh, if we look at uh, artists that I love. Um, I, you know, we were talking about Warren Zevon a mm-hmm. second ago before, when the microphones mm-hmm. weren't on. Warren Zevon's last album, uh, Keep Me In Your Heart For A While, is mm-hmm. the most beautiful song mm-hmm. ever written. And, I have to hear that. And five people bought it. You yeah. know, and that's yeah. the thing. Now, everyone knows Werewolves of London. Everyone mm-hmm. knows the songs that were a little mm-hmm. bit more accessible, a mm-hmm. bit more fun, a little bit more bouncy. Mm-hmm. But when he was doing stuff that actually resonated nearer the end of his life, mm-hmm. he died young. But he was in his 60s. He wasn't a viable, like, chart artist yes. anymore. Yes. And uh, and he was doing the best work of his career. Yes, absolutely. I, I'm the type of person as, as a reader or, you know, I want to listen to artists at their prime mm-hmm. when they're at their best. Yeah. Because why listen to crappy music. Yeah. 
You know, life's from, too short life for is, crappy life music. Life is too short for crappy music. <laughs> I'm speaking with Dabnit Doyle. The new album, Liquor Store Flowers, is available everywhere uh, right now. And we'll talk uh, about a, a recent life change. Uh, but around this time, so you're, you're opening for Steve Earle. You worked with Bare Naked Ladies. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were at a very young age all of a sudden, on the road, in a situation that you probably weren't really prepared for. No, no, no. Yeah. I was not. And what was that like? I mean, tell me, well, uh, you know, because it seems, I had Kevin Hearn in here mm-hmm. the other day, and he was just oh. about to, from the Bare Naked Ladies, of course. and he was about to head off, and they're doing, you know, uh, some unbelievable amount of dates in the United States, mm-hmm. and I, I said, uh, will I recognize you when you get back? Mm-hmm. And he's like, probably not. You know, yeah. it's different. It's just, it's a different life that you mm-hmm. have to, and he's got kids and yes, a family. Absolutely. It's a different thing now, yeah. Mm-hmm. And a beautiful article about him yeah. a couple of weeks ago, what yeah. a great article, what a great guy. No, I was woefully unprepared. And what that sowed for me were seeds of doubt, mm-hmm. self-doubt, because I was not – if I, you know, if, my, if I had known when I was 16 that all I wanted to do was be a musician, I would have spent those intervening years becoming really good at – Right. You know, but I wasn't really good. I was – I had some good songs and I was a good singer, but in terms of my self-awareness of be, stepping out and – I was so nervous and it, it – grew that anxiety in me where right. now I walk on stage. I'm, I get nervous before I go on stage, mm-hmm. but I know and I go, I am the best that I could possibly be at this point because I put the work in. We're talking about Liquor Store Flowers, her new album, which is available wherever you buy fine music, legally download <laughs> and uh, pick it up in stores, all that kind of stuff. It's, it, is it on vinyl too? It is on vinyl, yeah. So that's so fun. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. You can order it on, online from... Uh, my website or Warner's website. And the website is? Uh, God, I think it's davenatdoyle.com, but I don't know. Okay. People will find it. Just, yeah. Just type in your name and yeah. something will Ex- come up and exactly. you can order the vinyl. D-A-M-H-N-A-I-T. Yep. Come on. I, 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 yeah, I should know, but I don't. But you know what? You, you can't know everything. I can't, I can't. You know what? The internet is my friend and my foe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, imagine. Okay, so we're talking when we left. So we were talking about you being on tour. Mm-hmm. You're 20 years old. You're wearing half the clothes on stage that, yes. you, that you would wear now. All the stuff mm-hmm. that you say. Imagine if social media had no. been around then. And with the insecurities that oh. you were feeling, it might have been debilitating, debilitating oh, I, for you. I, and, and we were saying this, or, I was saying this earlier too off air, but I look at, these young stars like Selena Gomez mm-hmm. and Justin Bieber who are very open about their mental health issues and just how social media is, if you don't know yourself, I have two girls, five and six, and the thing I try and drive into them every day is like, well, wh- mommy, what do you, oh, no, what do you want? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like very much so. Know who you are. Figure out who you are. And when you're, I mean, you, you could not catch me dead putting my kids in, you know, in the entertainment world as children. Right. Because you just, you don't have an opportunity to really figure out who, who you are. And unless you know who you are, then you're insta- unstable. Mm-hmm. And then you're able to be pulled in all these different directions, artistically and morally. Um, ugh. And you've worked in, so you, you, you perform as a solo act for yep. a certain amount of time. And then over the last 
15 years, probably, mm-hmm. maybe more. You've yeah. been in two bands. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, a trio called Shay, which yes. achieved considerable success. Yes. Uh, Tara McLean and, and my pal Kim Stockwood. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, you, uh, there's a great story that I love uh, from those days where you were touring with Willie Nelson. Mm. And then uh, someone once asked you, and I, I can't find it in my notes here right off the top here, you know, what was uh, your greatest touring experience? Mm-hmm. And you said, with Shay, with Willie Nelson. And tell the story if you... Oh, my gosh. It's so funny because Willie just played in Toronto a couple of weeks ago. And we And Kim and I were in town. We went to see him, went on his bus, said hello. And then <laughs> at the end, very end... Were uh, you able to walk straight when you left the uh, bus? Well... <laughs> It's the contact high. I, That's I, what I hear is the danger of being on the bus. I still have the munchies. No, actually, yeah. they were they were driving to the U.S. that okay, night, so, so it was it was a very smoke free okay. bus, um, much to my chagrin. <laughs> um, but uh, so on this tour with Shay, every night for two weeks, we would get up on stage and sing "Will the Circle Be Unbroken" with them. Wow. I mean, it was, and then I look around now, Kim sent me pictures recently because it was a long time ago. And then I look and it's like Lucas Nelson, who, you know, his kids were on tour too. So Lucas, of course, now is a huge star and and worked on A Star is Born. And Mm -hmm. wrote all the songs. You know, it was really incredible. Absolutely mind-blowing. And so Kim and I, we were standing side stage two weeks ago just basking at all. Like, oh, it's like, you know, there are those opportunities that you do want to relive again. Most I don't. But that I did. And then um, when Willie went into his gospel set, Annie, his wife, just literally pushed us on stage. And we were like, oh, what's happening? She was like, you're going on stage. (laughs) And she, you know, said before, hey, Willie, why don't you get the girls up? And so we knew it was coming. But. It was spectacular. Oh, it's yeah. amazing. I mean, I just finished, I was just at a cottage with my family for a week and I read his most recent autobiography and it's just so stunning. Like he really, his whole career, he's just kind of, you know, gone to the beat of his own drummer yeah. and that's really inspiring to me. I'm speaking with Dabnit Doyle. The new album is Liquor Store Flowers. So touring at a young age. And then, you know, you're with these bands, you're with Shay, you're you're touring at a high level, you're mm-hmm. selling records. Uh, uh, the Heartbroken is another band that you have after that yes. for a number of years. Um, but you're drinking yes. all the way through this. Oh, that, for sure. That is, uh, you're playing clubs. Mm-hmm. It's a way of, of settling your nerves before you go mm-hmm. on. It's, uh, hey, we had a great show. Let's have a few beers after oh, the show. Oh, absolutely. Um, and and mm-hmm. at first it probably starts off... Um, in a smaller way, and then it sort of builds incrementally that you probably don't even know exactly what's happening. You're unaware yeah. of the crutch that it has become. Oh, absol- right? absolutely. Absolutely. And, I mean, it's twofold. It was all that. You're unaware, but also, like, to go back to your earlier point about how uh, women or girls are treated in the music industry, I started super young, mm-hmm. and I was literally off a boat from Catholic school, you know? So I remember the first time I was in the studio making my first record, going to the bathroom, and there was a Playboy magazine in there. I freaked the (laughs) hell. I could not, I could not believe I was seeing a Playboy. I mean, I was like serious Catholic school. Um, I could not believe what I was seeing. I could not believe I was in a situation where there was a Playboy magazine. I'm, you know, and then I realized, I was freaked out that whole day, and then I realized, I got to, I got to buck up. Like, I got to man down. I got to bro right. down. Right. Like, this, this, I can't be like this. I can't be a delicate little flower. No. Yeah. It's like, no, yeah. I've got to, like, I've got to get into this 
this is this is what I'm doing, mm-hmm. and I've got to live in this world. And that world was not made for me. So you conform and you change and you end up being different than you, you would be. And now I'm like, yeah, Playboy magazines, whatever. You know, my favorite thing that is, <laughs> I love them. you know, yes. it's like whatever. But at that point, for me, it was um, on my first bus tour. There's a bunch of artists on the road, and um, and you sleep. Are you sleeping on the bus? We're sleeping you, on the yeah. bus. So we're pulling into. I'm saving this for a book, too, but I'm going to tell the story here because it's so good. Um, pulling into somewhere in Saskatchewan, and, and there had been a snowstorm, so we decided to pull over. But there was a curling tournament in the city, so there was no hotels or motels for right. the bus driver. So we pull into a parking lot. And then everybody, you know, kind of partied that night. So went to bed maybe around, you know, 1230 or 1. And... I had to get up at like two or three to use the bathroom. I was dying to use the bathroom. It was the last thing I wanted to do was mm-hmm. get up in the middle of the night and use the bathroom. But I go, kind of wipe the sleep from my eyes, and I see, oh, someone's still awake. They're watching TV in the front lounge. And then I go, and I and the door to the bathroom is kind of open, but I'm asleep. So, right. And then I kind of pull it more, and it's the bus driver looking at a porn on the TV, masturbating. Oh. Yeah. Oh. So... You know, those things started to happen along the way. And I'm like, I cannot be this precious, delicate flower. So, and part of that is drinking. All the other guys are drinking. You're drinking too. Like, I don't want to be the stick in the mud. I don't want to be the one that's missing out. I don't want to be the, you know, these things that you think when you're young and in mm-hmm. your early 20s. And, and, and then all of a sudden, that's just what you do. Speaking about women in this sort of you know, area. Uh, you wrote a book called Miscellaneous Female. Yeah. And, and I love the story about where the title came from because, well, it's a, it, it was the, on the door of a dressing room at the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. And it was uh, a room for you, Buffy St. Marie, Laura McKennett, and many other notable female musicians. Oh, yeah. And it was just miscellaneous female. Sylvia room. Tyson was there too. Kim, Kim <laughs> just brought this up to me last week because I'd forgotten that I even wrote that book. And it's funny because I'm now on the board of directors for the yeah. Songwriters Hall of Fame. And, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, that was 15, 18 years ago or longer. And that, if, if I ever walk into a room that Buffy St. Marie is in yeah. and it says miscellaneous female on the door, I'm going to break down that yeah. yep. GD door. That's what I'm going to do. Um, but at the time, it was kind of like, that's what it is. Yeah. You kind of, you resign to it. You say that this record uh, really represents the music that you love. How so? I love Steve Earle, Lucinda Williams, mm-hmm. Willie Nelson, Patty Griffin. I love storytellers. Yeah. I, I love people who have like good driving music too, but but I want to I want to be I want it's like an, I want it to be like an audiobook. Right. On some level. You know, I want to learn something. I want to I want to get the truth of somebody's soul when I listen to music. And so when I was making this record, I knew, it's like nobody's waiting for a Davenant Doyle solo yeah. record. <laughs> I'm doing this for myself completely yeah. selfishly. Um, thank you to the government of Canada for <laughs> helping me. Um, and I just wanted it to be something that resonated with me. I wanted to say things I wouldn't say aloud. I wanted to like literally try and crack my ribs open and get in there and poke at my heart to like stop the steel around my heart, you know, get these things out. And I said things on that record I didn't even know about myself, mm. much like this interview. I've learned a lot about myself <laughs> here today. Thank you. And I, and, but I also wanted them to be good songs and good, yeah. good, 
good story songs um, that would stand the test of time, that that people don't need to discover this record. You know, that I didn't want them to buy it the day it came out. Right. I mean, would I like people to buy it someday sure. or stream it? Sure, I would love that. But I wanted to make a record that if they came to it in a year or if they came to it in 10 years, that it would still stand the test of time. And the way we approach that, John Densmore, who produced it, um, the way we approached it musically, I think that it that that will happen. That mm-hmm. will be the legacy of this record. Now, I got in touch with you after I read the article that you wrote for the mm-hmm. Toronto Star, and you know, it, it's a it, it's an article about how you've uh, not forced to stop drinking. That's not right. But you you stopped drinking, yes, uh, and it has improved your life greatly. Uh, and and it, it it feels different though. The work mm-hmm. now yes. feels a little different. So, mm-hmm. uh, what was it? That that made you say, you know what, I, I I have to not do this anymore. Well, it's funny because I've really taken an inward look the last bunch of years. Um, started therapy, which I would recommend to anybody. It's mm-hmm. mind blowingly amazing. So starting on this path of real wellness, spiritual, physical, and I really wasn't feeling physically good. I felt, you know, I've got two young kids. I'm busy. I'm have a career. I'm a you know full time mom. I Life is bananas, and I just had no energy. And I was like, I want to feel better. I want to exercise more. What am I going to cut out here? And the only thing that I could find to cut out was alcohol. I mean, there was no other extraneous things in my life that I could could or wanted to cut out. And before, it was always like a given. And then I just had this moment where I was like, why is that always a given? Because everybody else does it or because I've always done it? It's like that is not the life I want to lead. So I— I woke up one morning, and I was just done. And I'm the type of person what might take me a minute to make a decision, but once I make it, it is done. I'm not backpedaling. I'm not stepping back into it in the same way. And so the first month was challenging. I had a bunch of gigs. I went to a music festival. And that, you're like literally you're looking around going, I don't know what to do. Right. I physically don't when know I, what to do. I don't do. have a guitar in my hand, yes. and I don't know what to do. Yes, right. yeah. and 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 as everybody, you know, around you is doing what you always used to do, especially mm-hmm. at music festivals where, where there's like free booze and yeah. stuff. Yeah, everybody yeah. gets out of control, and, and and that was that was hard. Like I was counting the days at that point, um, just to rewire my brain and make a new habit. I didn't identify as being an alcoholic. I didn't Because there was no rock bottom moment. No. You didn't wake up in a puddle one day no. and say, "Oh man, no. I, I don't remember how I got here." No. I mean, I think that there was I I've always I've always had really really strong intuition and I kind of have that Irish witchy side of me yeah. where I know things that, right. that I have no possible way of knowing. And I think drinking alcohol throughout my career was a way of me dulling that sense Mm. down Mm. of consciously deciding to not listen to myself because what my voice would be telling you is get out of that room get out of this situation get out of this working relationship and those things seemed really difficult to me um, in the cross messaging so that I, I needed a way to quiet that voice and that's what it did and I got to a point in my life where I was like I am done like I think it was when I turned 40 um, when I was like I am I am this is a new life for me yeah um, and that I'm going to listen to that very strong intuition 
And so when, then when I quit drinking, I was like, oh, I had all of these, this amazing level of self-awareness that came up, the good parts and it, the bad it, parts. It doesn't happen straight away, though, right? Or does it? Oh, once I made the decision. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Really? I woke up one morning. I was like, I am done. But, I'm done. But but all the self-awareness that comes up. Yes. It, no, that, that, would, that takes a little while, that takes doesn't a, it? Yeah. Yeah. It was like a couple of years of therapy. Right. I've always done yoga. You know, somebody asked me, well, what have you, what do you do now? I said, well, therapy, yoga, and meditation. Yeah. You know, now before a show, if I'm nervous, I put on my Headspace app and I meditate. And it's, and, and it's really, really helpful. And performing is spectacular now because I'm just in those shoes and I, I'm really there not part of me is going you know f- f- you know I have a problem with grounding you know right. so now I'm super I'm grounded before I would easily get lifted off with hot air or helium balloons <laughs> you know it's like oh sure I'll do that fine <laughs> you know but now it's 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 different and it's uh, it's it's been it's been great why did you go public uh, with this I went public because I realize that I can be of service to other people. Mm. And I know that I have now I have I have a very strong voice, a very strong opinion. I believe in something. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to stand there and debate you if, yep. if, if need be. And I know that there are people out there who are suffering, that there are musicians out there who are on the fence, who know that they need to quit drinking. Um, so what does the music industry then have to do? Well, right now we're in a situation where um, if you're a musician and you're either playing in a bar or going to see music in a bar, there there are no non-alcoholic options mm-hmm. except for juice and Coke. People say, why don't you have a juice and a Coke? Um, and it's like, I don't, I'm not going to put that stuff in my body. I'm not going to put <laughs> sugar. Well, I'd rather put alcohol in my body, to yeah, be yeah. honest, than, than a Coca-Cola. Um, and it's, but it's about this thing where people have, there is this shame and there's this stigma about alcohol use. Mm-hmm. And there shouldn't be. You should be able to go to a bar, order a partake or order a non-alcoholic beer and just drink it. And nobody asks you like I'm I, I always fight for people who who can't fight for themselves. Like right. I'm fine. <laughs> if I, I don't if somebody wants to come out. Why aren't you drinking? I'm going to tell them why I'm not drinking because yeah, yeah. I don't care. But I'm not speaking for myself now. I'm speaking for other people who feel more vulnerable about it than I do. Who are like, oh, I don't want to admit that I have a problem, or maybe or I part do. of it is like this sort of rock and roll thing too. Yes, you know, oh, God. It, like the the, yeah. the famous pictures of Keith Richard always had a mm-hmm. you know a, a bottle of Jack Daniels on the mm-hmm. amplifier next to him, and it's yes. sort of it, it's part of the image that a lot of people want to portray. And it's part of the culture. Mm-hmm. It's like even you know before I quit drinking, if somebody was not drinking backstage, I'd be like, oh my God, what's wrong, what's with, wrong them? with them? You know, I felt that and so and I'm a pretty moderate uh, accepting person yeah. so I, I mean there are people out there who are who are this is I hope to find a path where it's easier for people to make certain decisions for themselves if they want to and then it's more acceptable in music culture and music society that it doesn't have to be like you're dead now because Really, when you go to work in a coal mine and you're allergic to coal or you were like, I'm forsaken coal, <laughs> but you still have to go to the coal mine, it's like there should be a little spot for you yeah. that's safe and you don't have to share your story. You don't have to. That's that's why I did it. And it's happening. Like immediately my friends at the Horseshoe were like, never thought about it from this perspective. Right. A lot of the perspectives I've heard are, you know, a lot of alcoholics don't have a, you know a near beer because it triggers them right. i never thought about this other kind of in between lifestyle until you know 
they heard it from from my voice, immediately they went and ordered non-alcoholic beer right. and that will be stocked there. And so that's exciting to me. And I love that at the end of uh, one of the columns that I read about this, you're like, I'm still fun. Yeah. I haven't stopped being fun just, wa- beca- yeah. just because I don't drink anymore. Yeah. I'm actually way more fun. <laughs> I'm way more, I'm still the per. you know, somebody's like, well, what do your friends think? I'm like, all my friends think it's great because I get free beer tickets at, at gigs and I give it to them, you know, and and I and I'm the, it's like having a recorder around. I remember yeah. everything. Right, right, it's, right. Um, but I stay out till three o'clock in the morning and I still have a ton of fun. And, it, you know, it's just like relearning how to do that, because, you know, as I said, I don't it's for me, it's way easier. I'm not. Like, I do not in any way want to discount the struggle of people mm-hmm. who have hardcore recovery, who yeah. are in hardcore recovery. I consider myself in recovery, but not from the heart. Not I know it's not the same yeah. struggle that other people have gone to. So I'm not saying quitting drinking is easy or anything like that. I know I know firsthand that it's that it's not from mm-hmm. other people who are close to me. Um, but. I don't even know where I was going with that. Well, you just, uh, I mean, the idea here is that you're looking after yourself. And I think that yeah. everyone's uh, journey and struggle with this uh, is unique to themselves. Yes, it is. You know? Absolutely. Um, you know, I um, I enjoy a cocktail. Yes. But I can't smoke cigarettes. Yeah. And I quit years ago. I yeah. quit 15 years ago. And uh, I had one of those moments, like you described, yeah. where you just wake up and say, oh, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Smoke two packs of cigarettes a yeah. day for a million yeah. years. Yeah. And, and it was awful. Yeah. The first year was yes. awful, but I yeah. I, I have uh, persevered. And good for you. You got to do it. Yeah, you, you got. And and it. I I also want to say it's like, um, I'm the first one to pour someone a glass of wine. Right. I'm the my my husband still drinks. Like I'm I'm not anti booze at yeah. all. And I think certain people, you know, maybe read the headline and and don't get to the meat. I don't care what you do. I don't care. I, I would encourage people to smoke if it wasn't bad for them because I, I enjoyed it when I did it. Uh, me but I, too. I, but I don't. I can't tell people to you, do it. You know. One last thing. You know that Jason is. Oh, I love Jason Isbell. He's my yes. favorite. Jason Isbell, four hundred unit, have this great song called "If We Were Vampires." You know, if you were immortal, you know, we'd stand out on the sidewalk and smoke. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, we would, baby. Be great. David, thanks so much. Thank you what, so what much. A what a thoughtful, thoughtful interview. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, uh, thanks so much.